Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. We're actually going to read the whole chapter, so let's just dive into it. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being, literally a living soul. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Tivlia, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is Hittichel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. I hope you're impressed. I worked on those names this week. I might have gotten them totally wrong, but I practiced them. I'm telling you. Continuing. Thank you. Appreciate it. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now we noted last Sunday that in verse four, we're given this, this phrase, the history of, the genealogy of, which marks a transition in Moses' presentation here of the creation narrative. It would seem in chapter one that what Moses provides us is kind of an overarching blueprint or structure for God's creation. Before then, following the seventh day when God rested, giving us in chapter two more details specifically to day six. So in chapter one, we're given all of creation, the beginning of chapter two, a day God rested, and then the rest of this particular chapter, more details tucked into the sixth day. Now you could go through these verses in many different ways, pastors do. We've chosen to kind of approach our text thematically. 
And thus, you can divide this chapter, these remaining verses, into two fundamental sections. One, you had the creation of man and woman and the parameters of their enjoyment of this distinction. Last Sunday, we talked about the creation of man and woman. This morning, we'll get to the parameters of their enjoyment of this distinction. The second section, thematically, is the formation of their world, the Garden of Eden, these rivers, their environment, what it looked like, the parameters also therein on how they were to enjoy these things. Creation, man and woman. As we noted last Sunday, to make the woman. God took certain genetic traits from the man, which is why when Adam wakes up, it wasn't a rib removed, it was a section, it was his side, a chamber. And he's cognitively aware when he awakes that something is missing. Not only that, but upon then the presentation of Eve, Adam recognizes that the part that's missing in him is found in her. It's why he declares, upon seeing the woman, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she was taken out of me. What's missing from me, it's found in her. As we noted, the Bible is clear on four important points concerning human gender. First, the Bible is clear that genders exist. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we're told, in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Not only does the Bible make it clear that genders exist, but the Bible does something else interesting. We didn't touch on it last Sunday. We'll get to it now. Do you notice that God, in addition to there being genders, God determines a person's gender. God made Adam and he called him male, man. He made Eve, called her woman, female, Gender assignments and their particularities were determined by the genetic and biological makeup of each given by God, meaning your gender this morning, whether you're male or female, your gender exists for one reason. God determined it. It's a work of God. Now, I bring this up, not to get on a soapbox, to rage against transgenderism, or to even make the argument as to why you should be boycotting Target. I don't care. Which, on a side note, if you do want to boycott Target, you should also boycott Disney, Starbucks, ESPN, that one's a little more difficult, right? The NBA, and you shouldn't watch any NFL game because they all hold the same position as Target. So just be consistent if you're going to boycott. Instead, here's the deal. I bring this up, this important point that God gives you gender to explain why it is then that it should be no surprise that our society, a society that has rejected the existence of God in every high school and collegiate classroom for the last 50 years, would now view our position of gender distinctions being determined by biology and more specifically God and not the decision of the individual as being bigoted. Like, it is clear our society has gone nuts. Like, we've gone mad. But our society is just being consistent with its worldview. If there is no God, 
behind our biology, then why should we allow random biological chance to be the sole determiner of maleness and femaleness, yet alone some antiquated, non-progressive societal norm propagated by people who believe in God? It's crazy, but it's consistent. This is what you get when you remove God as creator. Secondly, genders, according to the Bible, in addition to existing, being determined by God, genders are of equal importance. In Genesis 1, verse 28, we read, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Bible gives no place for machismo, some self-important role with males ruling over women. Welch pastor and author, Matthew Henry, he famously wrote this. I love it. You've probably heard it at, at weddings. But he wrote, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near to his heart to be beloved. I like that. Thirdly, while of equal standing and value before God, the Bible is also clear that genders are distinct from one another. And we find this distinction both positionally and biologically. While all men are created equal, in no way does that mean all men are created the same. That's the truth. Every human being is different. God made us that way. Some of you are smarter than others. Other, others of you are more athletically gifted than others. Like we're all different and unique created by God. Consider that not only was Adam created first and Eve brought to him by God so that Adam would be responsible for her. But the very fact that God removed a certain biological part of the man to make the woman means that there are simply aspects of our biological makeup, the makeup of male and female that are intrinsically different from one another. And science continues to prove this point. You can refer to last Sunday's Bible study for more information. Finally, there is, according to scripture, a purpose in these gender distinctions. It's not an accident. In God's design of gender, it is through their equality and by their distinctions that a divinely inspired human unity can be achieved. Each gender was created in such a way that they would fill a unique role essential to the most intimate of all human forms of companionship. I don't know if you've noticed subtlety within the creation narrative, but God does more than simply speak order out of chaos. If you've noticed over and over again, we see God's word, not just moving chaos to order, but doing something else, setting the parameters for how this created order should naturally operate. And that's important. 
For example, after creating light on the first day, what does God do? We're told that God proceeds to divide the light from the darkness, gives them names and roles. The same he then did on day two for the waters in the firmament. Upon creating vegetated life on day three, God established the parameters of recreation to occur how? Specifically through seed and fruit yielding life according to its kind before ultimately replicating that command concerning the procreation of fish, birds, land animals. We're told blessing them and saying, be fruitful and multiply. God spoke order out of chaos and then he defined how order was to operate. He goes on the record. Not only did God create all things, but he specifically determined how the things he created were to function and interact in the natural world for there to be order. Man and woman, humanity, is no exception to this rule. God indeed made them, male and female, and he did so for the purposes of companionship, but God then determined that this ultimate joining together of the genders to occur and the first of all human institutions, that of marriage. Notice how the first few verses of Genesis 2 are structured. How the last two verses. We're told God made Eve and brought her to the man. And God said, this is now bone, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then, note, after communicating the existence of and purpose behind creating the male and female, these two gender roles, Moses continues by explaining to us that this ultimate human companionship of man and woman occur a very specific way. He says, therefore, so he creates genders, male and female, therefore a man, this is how it should work, God telling us, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Understand, God determined that this joining together of the genders occur within a very unique process we refer to as marriage. Notice the result of a man leaving his father and mother was that he be joined to his wife, the woman. For what purpose? So that the two should become one, one flesh. It's essential you keep in mind that the fundamental purpose behind marriage was the enjoyment of this intimate form of companionship between male and female. Like the, the purpose of it was that they would enjoy one another and be one with one another. Like understand procreation as a, an important part, function of marriage, is secondary to the enjoyment. Like nowhere here were they told, right? To have babies. Therefore, you shall become one so that you can produce many. No, it was you shall become one so you can enjoy oneness with each other. Having babies is a secondary purpose behind marriage, not the essential one. Because Eve was removed from Adam, making them distinctly separate, this subsequent joining together 
The purpose behind it is that it returned them to a state of completeness described with this interesting phrase, one flesh. In the Hebrew, one, it's the word akkad, flesh, basar. The phrase means that they were one body, one unit. In his wisdom, God took from the man the woman. Why? Specifically, so he could then bring them back together as one. Before we continue, I do think it's important to say that our human desire, you know, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. That that desire, the desire for community, the desire for companionship, it can, biblically speaking, find a measure of satisfaction in the same sex. That's a truth. There is no doubt that we all have lasting friendships that are deeply meaningful and important. That we live life with one another, regardless of sex. Like I can say 100% without a doubt that, that my life, God has enriched my life with male friends that are more than friends, but brothers. Brothers that I'd lay down my life for. And yet, while same-sex companionship is a reality when it comes to scripture, it's a truth that human companionship in its most ultimate form, found in marriage, a marriage union, only occurs, scripturally speaking, with the opposite sex. Like, you and your bro can be heterosexual life partners forever. Like, sweet. But, but that's not marriage. Like, that's not what God is designing. That's not what God's creating. That's not the picture here. Like, Paul, Paul would sit right in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 9. I say this as a concession. It's not a command, a concession. Each one has his own gift from God to the unmarried. That's what Paul says. If they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Fellas, if you don't need a woman, you're like, I got this. That's unique. You're an outlier. If you have any passion towards a woman, get married. That's just evidence you don't have the calling. And likewise to the woman. Like God has created these things to be enjoyed within the opposite sex not the same. Notice, for this marital oneness to occur between two people, a joining together had to first take place between a man and his wife. Do you notice that? Leave father and mother, be joined before you're one. This word joined literally means to cleave or follow, follow hard or stick. Beyond referring to the mutual exchange of sexual pleasure, this word speaks of a total commitment of the man to his wife and the wife to her husband. And note, the oneness described here in Genesis 2 cannot be achieved through sameness because it requires the unifying of two people uniquely distinct, male and female, not male and male or female and female. In addition to being decisively committed. Marriage oneness can only exist, scripturally speaking, 
and a heterosexual monogamous relationship safeguarded through a lasting commitment made to one another, but mainly to God. And yet, for this joining together to take place, a relational prioritization coupled with individual commitments are essential. They're non-negotiable. Like in placing this idea in context, we're told a man shall leave his father and mother. True companionship and oneness with your spouse is only possible when it doesn't have the strain of competing relationships or committal uncertainties. It's hard for there to be oneness when you're not sure the other part of the equation is really in it, really committed. Like these influences include parental influences, buddies, girlfriends, old flames, children, even your imagination. Like I love Adam's reaction when God presents to him Eve. Whoa, man, right? I really don't know what to say. Whoa, man. Like it was this weird reaction commentary. What is that? Wow. What I love about it is that for Adam, this woman, his wife, was the most beautiful woman in the world. It, It helped she was the only woman in the world but the point still, still sticks, which is important. And I want to say this about leaving to cleave. For Adam, Eve, his wife, was his standard for beauty. She was his standard. It wasn't images on the TV screen or the magazines or on porn sites. For, for Adam, his standard of what the most beautiful woman in the world looked like was his wife. And as a result of that, he was able to safeguard his heart and his imagination from substituting his wife as being the standard of beauty with something else because the heart, when the heart leaves, the feet always follow. What's significant about marriage is not only what's accomplished between two people here, two people independently equal, but uniquely distinct from the other, making a decision to forsake all, to come together for complete oneness, existing in total harmony. That's what marriage is. But marital significance, it mainly resides in how this oneness is accomplished and what it was ultimately instituted to represent. Keep in mind, this coming together of Adam and Eve, this marriage, it didn't exist or develop in a vacuum. As a matter matter of fact, there was a process to Adam and Eve hooking up, which for you married people, this isn't a point that's relevant. If you are not married, please pay attention. This is totally for you and it's free of charge. First notice something about the story. The entire undertaking, this process, it was initiated by God, right? 
And it was initiated when God saw what Adam needed. Before, mind you, Adam recognizing that. So God saw Adam's like, dude, can't be alone, right? Like that man needs a woman, you know? Like he, there's a need in Adam that nothing else in this world satisfies. He's lacking. He needs something. Then notice, right? God, what did he do? What did he do next? Did he have a powwow with Adam? No, 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 no. Instead, God had Adam name the animals, right? And he does that for what purpose? To reinforce to Adam all of the things that were incompatible with him. And note, that was, God saw a need and then God revealed to Adam what was incompatible. Like, that's not gonna work. Why? To stir in him a desire for genuine compatibility. He saw what was incompatible so that now there's a desire for compatibility. Now, notice that God didn't command Adam at that point. God sees the need, stirs the need in Adam. Now Adam's aware. He's awakened to the need. But but notice, God doesn't have Adam go into the world to search out for a companion. Like imagine what that would have ended up with. Like if Adam had gone out further into the world to find someone that was compatible, he would have ended up with or settling for close, but not right. And anytime you ever, when it comes to this dynamic, settle for close and not right, it's gonna be a disaster. He would have ended up with an orangutan. That's pretty close. Have you ever dated an orangutan? <laughs> yeah. That's close, but just, that's not right. But notice, that's why God didn't say, hey, Adam, go out, find one. Hit the dating scene. Go to the clubs. You'll find her, right? Go on the hunt, man. No, 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 no. That wasn't what God did. Notice that what did God do? God sees a need stirs the need. Adam's like, I've got a need. And then God's like, dude, go to sleep. Don't go hunt. Don't go look. Just go to sleep. Go to sleep. And why did God do that? Well, it's true that God took from Adam to form Eve. Don't overlook this point. And it's the reality that the purpose behind this sleep was for God to perform an important surgery on Adam that would make him into a partner compatible for Eve. A lot of guys had this, had this like, yeah, man, I'm just chilling. I'm just waiting because God's out there making my woman. <laughs> no, no, like that's no. no the, the, the purpose of chilling back, trusting God and sleeping is so that God works in you and makes you into someone that will attract what you need for compatibility. Like it's, and and please pay attention to this. It's vitally important. Instead of searching for a boyfriend or a girlfriend, instead of going out there and looking for one, you need to go to sleep 
and allow God to work on you, making you into something beautiful and special, into someone who will attract what you really need, the mate, the companion you really need. The old adage is true. The people you attract reveal a lot about the person you are. And I'll just kind of leave that to the imagination, but I think you know what I mean. Finally, in the end, this process involved God, right? God brought to Adam Eve, right? And then conversely led Eve to Adam. God was in the process. God brought the woman to the man and thus led the man to the woman. While God left, and this is what's interesting, every aspect of his creation to obey the natural order he had established. This is totally unique. Like this is totally different. God does something kind of radical with humanity. You see, this marital joining together of a man and a woman was a direct and unique act of God. Think about the big picture. God formed man, split him in two, man and woman, then intentionally brought Eve to Adam so he might join them back together to be one unit. God did it all. It was all God's plan. It's why we call the process holy matrimony. That marriage is holy by design. This divine action is separate. It's what holy means from every other aspect of his created order. Now this is for the, for the married couples. This is why that the key to oneness, aside from leaving and cleaving and all of that, the key to oneness is the inclusion of God. It's the inclusion of God. While you can forsake all others, and you can even commit yourself to your spouse, it is only God who can supernaturally weave two separate people and make them one. It's, it's why we traditionally structure our vows, not just to one another, but we structure them to God before God and these witnesses. That the power to be faithful is not in me, because if it is, Jessica's in trouble. But it's in God. It's in the Holy Spirit living in me and dwelling in me and dwelling in her and bringing us together and knitting us. It's not just leaving, it's not just cleaving. It's God doing a work of unification. Sadly, while many Christians rail against the state's redefining of what's always been seen as a religious institution. We fail to recognize that it has been our failure as Christians to live up to the uniqueness of our view of marriage that has undermined our own moral footing. While we claim marriage is supposed to be a supernatural act of God on high, should we be surprised that our society no longer respects our stanch on marriage when the divorce rates of Christians is identical to those who don't share our positions on marriage uniqueness? Think about it this way. 
This is a heavy thought, I know, but it needs to be said. Who really is responsible for removing God from the institution of marriage? The church or the state? Honestly, the state just made official what the church has long been illustrating. Our failure to keep God in the center of our marriages has provided the secular state all the evidence it needs to claim God isn't involved with marriage at all. It's our fault that we haven't kept God in the center and thus stayed married to one another. We're reaping our own reward and it's rotten and bitter. Let me explain why this, while true, is tragic. The reality of the Bible is that God directly involved himself in the instituting of marriage, bringing Adam and Eve together, because marriage was designed to be a picture to humanity of a much larger reality. Marriage, this covenantal joining together of a man and a woman by God for the purposes of enjoyment, completeness, and companionship served to illustrate the way in which God viewed his relationship with you, with me, with mankind. Like the reason Moses includes this story in the narrative of Genesis was not only to explain to us the importance of marriage and the origins of this institution, but he includes this story to remind God's people that Israel was in a covenantal relationship with God. That this unifying of man and woman was designed to be a picture of the unification that God desired with his people. This is why in the book of Hosea, in order to explain the grave nature of Israel's idolatry, what does God do? He refers to Israel as being an adulterous bride. Like he brings it home. We understand that. We relate to it. How interesting that the only biblical grounds for divorce is when an activity has been committed that fundamentally undermines the oneness that marriage was instituted to create. Physical, emotional adultery tears at the fabric of leaving all or the act of being joined only unto your spouse. Domestic violence does the same. Additionally, a spouse abandoning the other as a result of the involvement of God, the unbeliever departing, it also makes oneness impossible because God is central to oneness. And yet, while God's plan for marriage doesn't include divorce, God's plan following the fall did create an allowance for the abandoned or cheated upon party spouse to remarry. Consider, and this is provocative, that God himself divorced and remarried following years of Israel's idolatry, years of her adultery. You know, over and over and over again, right? In the New Testament, the church is described as what? 
as being the bride of Jesus Christ. C.H. McIntosh observed concerning this point, God left not the first man without a helpmeet, neither would he leave the second. As in the case of the former, there would have been a blank in creation without Eve. So, and then he says, stupendous a thought. In the case of the latter, there would have been a blank in new creation without the bride, the church. In his series on biblical masculinity, Pastor Sandy Adams, which I should point out is a tremendous scholar and theologian, and if he's listening to this, I hope that scores me points. But he said this, that's my dad, by the way. But he said, and this is a powerful, powerful statement. He says, marriage, marriage derives its highest significance, not just because it makes two people happy, order society, or promotes raising kids. Marriage is special because it conveys biblical truths important to God. Uh, And then he makes this observation. I think this is great. God took a rib from Adam's side. He used it to create a bride. And on the cross of Calvary, a spear was thrust through Jesus' side. And out flowed blood and water, the same blood that washes away our sin. God took from Jesus' side, and he used it to create his bride, the church. And yet this imagery, this picture, like Paul takes it one step further, and it's important for Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And this is several verses, but, but let me read it for you because this is pivotally important. Paul says, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And we'll get to the, what he's communicating in that in the next couple weeks. But the purpose here, we're told by Paul, is that Jesus might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, us, should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, this is where it starts to tie in. Paul says, for no one ever hated his own flesh. No one hated himself but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So he's making a connection to one flesh. For we are members, how? Of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. And then Paul quotes, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning, not Adam and Eve, not man and woman, but Paul says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, in conclusion, this is what's important for us. The genesis of grace. God created gender, male and female. And then he determined that within marriage, 
And what is marriage? This intimate form of human companionship. When these distinct but equal genders come together, are brought together by God to become one. Gender and marriage exist to present for us a picture of what? Of the gospel of Jesus and more specifically, his amazing, incredible, awesome, world-changing grace. Consider that the only reason any of us have been made alive spiritually rests in the reality that from Jesus' broken body, we were formed, made by God. For what purpose? So that we then could be presented back to Jesus. Sure, while it's true, we are uniquely distinct from Jesus. As his bride, we have been afforded a covenantal relationship with Jesus through which we are now able to become one flesh with him. And why is that important? For it's in Christ that we have salvation. By becoming one with Christ, we are saved and set free. And what do we do in this process? What is our role? Let me ask, what did Eve do? What did she do? To become one with Adam, what did she do? Absolutely nothing. In our text, she did absolutely nothing, did she? And the point is that this was entirely and completely a work of God. While it's true that the only thing that is required of us is that we forsake all, forsake all others. In his great love and by his amazing grace, Jesus, the man, chose to leave his heavenly father to be joined to his wife in order that through our oneness with him, we might have life and that more abundantly. Do you get the picture? that because we're brought into this relationship with Jesus, removed from him to be brought back, to become one with him, you are now justified. You're one with Jesus. You're covered. You're an adopted son and daughter of God, co-heirs to all of the promises that Jesus has as God. Why? Because you're one with him. Through what? A relationship with him. Based on what? You doing nothing and him doing everything. With all this imagery in mind, is there any wonder that our secular, secular pagan society, one that has rejected the existence of God and rejected the authority of God's word, would specifically attack the distinctiveness of human gender in addition to redefining the parameters of marriage? Like not only are these two progressive trends an affront to God's established order, because he has one, but these two trends are malicious, and don't overlook that. They're malicious in that they intentionally seek to deconstruct a very picture that God built to illustrate his desired relationship with you. 
It's why he made them male and female and brought them together to be one because it was a picture of you and Christ being brought together to be one. And when we break away from gender distinctions and we seek to redefine marriage because we're rejecting God and his word, that's malicious. That's intentional. Don't overlook it. Within Genesis 2, we see that it is by these very gender distinctions that marriage oneness has been made possible, which presents an amazing picture of God's grace. And so, Father, Father, 